as being greater than everything else in this world, everything else in this life. And so as we work our way through the book of Hebrews in this study together, we're going to be looking at ways that Jesus is greater than whatever we face. And so this morning we study the second half of Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 5 and finishing I said Hebrews 5, I meant Hebrews chapter 2, excuse me. Hebrews 2, we're starting in verse 5. Second half of Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5 and finishing out Hebrews 2 together this morning in this text. And, and we're going to see ways that Jesus became a man in, in this passage this morning. It points to this. Let me play catch up quickly for those of you who may have missed the last few weeks. We're not very far into this study now. We saw in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is presented as being greater than the angels. Now that's significant and it's important for, this, important for this reason. The letter of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. It's written to Jewish people who were believers now in Jesus. But in every way they still identified themselves according to their Hebrew, their Jewish roots. And so for them, Judaism was not just a religion to practice. It was their culture. It was their identity. It was even their ethnicity. It was who they were. And so they were wrestling with understanding what do we hold on to and what do we let go of. Naturally, you can understand. If you, if you understand a few things about Judaism, and, and we'll see some of that come to bear in our study through Hebrews, that because of the sacrifices, because of the sacrificial system, because of the holy calendar that the Jews followed, because of the feast that they celebrated, because of the temple and worship and all of these things, the early Christians, particularly those early Christians who were Jews, who believed in Jesus, really wrestled with understanding what do we hold on to and what do we let go of? What is it that we're supposed to what is it that we're supposed to continue practicing and doing? And what are those things that are now fulfilled and superseded because we understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was the one that was promised of God. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to them, encouraging them, and he's starting at the very foundational level of their faith. And so he will talk some in Hebrews about some of the practices and things, but more than just dealing with certain practices, you should continue to follow these customs and not do these customs. He wants to deal with the foundational issues of faith. What faith things need we understand in order that we, that we come out of, or, or, or really in, in a way we might say, so that we understand what's been realized through the person and the work of Jesus. And so in Hebrews chapter 1, he writes that Jesus was greater than the angels. That's significant because in the Old Testament, the angels are seen as the ones who were the messengers of God. The angels were seen as the ones who delivered the message of God. In Deuteronomy, we see that. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that the angels appeared to deliver a message from God. And each time the angels delivered a message, in this message, ultimately, wrapped up even in the law itself, was pointing to the need for a Messiah, the need for something greater. And the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is better than the angels and his message is better than the message of the angels because although the angels came to deliver a message that pointed us to Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of those messages. He was the fulfillment of those promises and his message was greater than their message. Whereas the angels delivered a message promising someone who would come, Jesus was the one who had come to fulfill that message, and in him we find the fulfillment of God's promises. And so Hebrews 1 delivers that message to us and really sets the stage. Now, Hebrews chapter 2, the first four verses that we studied last week, we see a, a pause, a warning interjected of sorts that says we need to hold fast 
to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. We saw in Hebrews chapter 2 last week that we tend to drift away when we neglect what we've heard, when we neglect the message of the gospel. We tend to drift away when we neglect what we have, what we have seen, when we neglect those things that we were taught, right, physically, those things that we've seen that have been taught, that have been demonstrated for us to study the Word of God. So we, we drift away when we tend to neglect the study of the Word of God. And finally, we saw that we tend to drift away when we neglect what we've been given, that each of us who are believers in Jesus have been given spiritual gifts that were intended to be used in the body of Christ. And so when we neglect those gifts, when we aren't serving and using those gifts, then we tend to drift away. And so how do we, how do we avoid drift? We saw last week. Well, first of all, we center our lives around the gospel. Secondly, we study the word of God. Third, we serve. You have to be actively engaged serving somewhere. And so now as he, as he has interjected this important point, he's working back into his original argument, if you will, folding these things back into his original point in Hebrews 2.5 about Jesus and the message that Jesus gives. It's greater than the angels. So let's pick up Hebrews 2.5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So again, continuing on this message of Jesus and his supremacy above all things, his superiority to the angels and the message of angels. He's saying, listen, the angels came, they delivered an important message, but it's not the angels that were ultimately given this authority. It's not the angels to whom the things of this world have been subjected. That's the point. So he says in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. Now let's pause there for just a moment. Here's what's really significant about this, this, this next phrase and, and, and what's to come. In this, the, the writer of Hebrews says here in Hebrews 2.6, it, it has been testified somewhere. You may read that and think, well, okay, so somewhere somebody has said that. But he's about to quote from Psalm chapter 8. I read to you in the welcome time earlier from Psalm 8. I read the entire 8th Psalm. And the writer of Hebrews is about to quote from Psalm 8 here. What's significant about this is that David was the author of Psalm 8. Now, the writer of Hebrews, being a Jew, certainly would have known the significance of David, and David as being the, the, the one who had written Psalm 8, and even the significance of David in, in the culture, in the story of the people of God in Israel. David was, was on the Mount Rushmore of the Jewish faith, so to speak. And yet, here he says, yeah, somebody somewhere said this, right? It would, be, it would be kind of like this, all right? Think of some phrase, think of some phrase that, we, that, that is sort of culturally embedded in, in, in the fabric of our story as Americans, okay? I want to pick on just one. You could, you could, you could pick almost any, anything, right? But let me just pick one iconic phrase, when, when Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his famous speech, the steps, of, uh, of, uh, the steps there of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, what did he say? I have a dream, right? We all know this, right? It would be as if we were telling the story of the, story of the civil rights in, in, in our country, and we said, yeah, once there was this guy who said something like, I have a dream, right? And we, and we left uh, Martin Luther King Jr. entirely out of it everyone would know who we were talking about. Everyone would know who it was that famously said, I have a dream, right? We would have understood that. His audience here understands what he's about to quote. But here's what's significant about this. Even in the way that he's writing, 
the author of Hebrews is not trying to draw the attention to David and the psalm that David wrote, but he's showing that it was the Holy Spirit of God, ultimately, who used the instrument of David, who used David as an instrument to deliver these words, and then he's even going to interpret these words in light of Jesus. So he uses the words of David from Psalm 8, he, he draws it into this current conversation that he's having, but then he shows through his own interpretation of that how ultimately those things find their fulfillment in Jesus. Here's the point. Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is greater than the Psalms. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is, da- is greater than anyone or anything else in all of history. So yeah, some guy once upon a time somewhere said these words, right? That he, the, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now when Psalm 8 was originally written by David, it was a psalm about us as mankind. It was a psalm where, where the psalmist, where David is beautifully saying, God, Who are we that we deserve your attention at all? Who are we, God? Who is mankind? Who am I that you are mindful of me? Who, who, little old me, God, that you would pay any attention to me whatsoever? And yet, you have placed this world under the subjection, under the authority of mankind. You have placed the things of this world, the beasts of the field, the, the, the fish of the sea, you have placed those in subjection under the authority of mankind. Psalm 8, giving reference to Genesis chapter 1, where God creates man in his own image and gives man dominion over all of the living creatures on the earth. Man was given the responsibility to name those creatures, to have, to have authority and dominion over the creatures of the earth. When David writes that in Psalm 8, he's essentially saying, God, how incredible is it that you would think anything of me, that you would think anything of mankind at all, that you would give us this honor, that you would bestow upon this. But yet, what do we know to be true from the Old Testament scriptures? Even though mankind was given this authority, even though man was given this dominion, ultimately, through the fall, all of that was lost. And so now, in this fallen state in which we live, we we are not what God intended for us to be. We do not live up to the authority and and the righteousness that we were created for because we have fallen in sin. And yet what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that all of that ultimately is restored through Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 8, but then look at what he says. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. This hasn't happened yet, he's saying, the writer of Hebrews. As of yet, we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. But a day is coming. A day is coming, which is why he says, and if we jumped back up to verse five, he's subjected the world to come, right? He's talking about things that are to come. Verse nine, he says, we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, Jesus, for a little while, 
by the will of God, was made lower than the angels. He's, he's responding to a potential objection here. So in Hebrews 1, as he's writing about how Jesus is greater than the angels and his message is greater than the angels, the, the objection to that by the Hebrew, by the, especially by the person who doesn't believe in Jesus, the objection might be, well, if Jesus is greater than the angels, then how is it that he died? Angels don't die. How is it that he couldn't rescue himself from the cross? And, and he's answering the potential objection here by saying, for a little while, Jesus allowed himself to be subjected, even under the authority of angels, to be made lower than those heavenly beings. Why? He's going to tell us. So that the grace of God, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So that Jesus, through his death, might pay the price for us. He might taste death, as it were, to pay the price for your sin and my sin. Let's go on in verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Again, this is speaking of Jesus. Now he's not saying that Jesus was made perfect through suffering because Jesus was perfect before his suffering. The point that he's making is that this was, this was restoring that which was lost. We were once perfect before the fall of sin, but those things have now been restored through Jesus because of his sacrifice for us. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing of your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given to me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power, the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. That idea of Jesus being a priest on our behalf is going to be one of the key themes in all of the book of Hebrews. And we'll pick it up as we, as we continue to, to go. So hold on to that in, in the back of your mind. Catalog that away. So that he might be a faithful, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation which is just a fancy word to say that he made payment on behalf of us. He makes payment for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We find in Hebrews chapter 2, again, the, the, the beauty of the gospel that is, that is opened up for us to see here. That Jesus is greater than, than the angels. That Jesus is greater than everything else. And to demonstrate his greatness, he willingly subjected himself to the authorities of this world. He willingly lowered himself below even the angels for a time so that he might taste of death. So that he might live a perfect life and offer him, himself, offer his life as payment for us so that he could be that merciful and faithful high priest given on our behalf payment for our sins. And so what we see in, in this picture in Hebrews 2 is that Jesus became a man. Now that's significant. It's incredibly significant 
to the message of the gospel, that Jesus became a man. On Sunday nights right now, we're studying through what's called the unvarnished truth. And I would invite you to join us tonight at 6 o'clock right here in this room as we study through the unvarnished truth. It's essentially the message of the gospel. And in the message of the gospel, we find that there is one great God. There is one great God. But there is also one great problem, and that is the sin, the sin that you and I have committed. But God in his love for us made a way, and that way is the one great hope, which was Jesus who offered himself for us, which leads us to one great decision that we must choose either to accept or reject the gift of Jesus Christ. One great God, one great problem, one great hope, one great decision. It's the message of the gospel, right? I've shared it with you many times this way, that it's his, his position that God was holy and just. My condition is that I'm broken in sin. His provision is that he gave Jesus. My decision is that I, that I call on him. It's, it's, a, it's a tried and true understanding of the gospel, right? Of God, man, Jesus, and a response. Kind of a fourfold understanding of the gospel. The classic way that it's, that it's commonly understood. And understanding that Jesus became a man is essential to understanding the message of the gospel. Because if Jesus never became a man, then he could not suffer and die in your place and in my place. But because he became a man, because he lived a sinless, perfect life on this earth, he now is able to offer himself, his life, as payment for our sin. It's the message of the gospel. And so we see in Hebrews 2 that Jesus became a man. But I want us to see four ways in this passage that it, that it tells us that he became a man. Four significant points that go along with this incarnation is the word that we use oftentimes, that Jesus took on human flesh, right? And, and, and so that's his incarnation. Four things that we see that are significant about this. And so to do that, I'm gonna use some prepositions today, okay? I want you to think back to when you were in when you were in your, your English or your grammar classes and, and you were learning about the use of prepositions. Now, I don't know what kind of, of method your English teacher or your grammar teacher may have used to, to teach you about prepositions, but this is what, I'm not even making this up, this is what my English teacher taught us in the seventh and the eighth grade, okay? Mrs. Lewis taught us that a preposition, if you wanna think about a preposition, that a preposition is everything that a squirrel can do with a tree. Okay, I'm not making that up, right? A squirrel can be on a tree, by a tree, with a tree, uh, I guess like a tree, you know, uh, all of these different ways. And so that was her method to try to get us to think about all the many different words that could be used as prepositions. I want to use some prepositions to fill in the blanks here that will help deepen our understanding of, of Jesus' incarnation, of the fact that Jesus became a man. And so we see in this passage, first of all, that Jesus became a man like us. Now here's what's significant about this, that Jesus became a man like us, is that because he was a man like us, and, and the word there, man, is, is a word uh, that could it's talking about be, becoming a man, but in this passage, the word brothers 
is the word adelphoi in the Greek. It's the plural. It can mean man and men and women. Brothers and sisters literally is what it means, brothers and sisters. But, but it, it's talking about men and women alike here. So when I say man in this sense, I'm referring generally to mankind, right? Jesus became a man like us. And so because he was a man like us, Jesus understands what you and I go through in this life. This passage tells us that we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels. He was a man like us. We are, we are lower than the angels. We see that all throughout the Old Testament, that mankind was created and given dominion over this world, but that we lost that dominion in the fall, and that now we are subjected to the authorities of angels, of principalities, Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 6, in this world. Now, chiefly, who is, who is the angel that is, that is ultimately chief of this world? It's Satan himself, the enemy himself, right? But he's not necessarily referring here just to Satan and, and, and his, his angels and, and his angelic host, but he's talking about just in general, mankind is lower than the angelic beings, at least for a time. Now, in the age to come, what we understand is that when Jesus comes again in the age to come, in the new earth that God will create in heaven, we will be restored to the position of dominion, the position of authority that we were intended from the beginning as the bride of Christ, and that in that we will experience authority even over angelic beings, right? That's, that's all has to do with end times, and, and I don't want to chase that too far today because it gets us off of our, our, our more important point here. But it's significant that we understand how all of this fits together in, in the whole of Scripture and the arguments that the, the writer of Hebrews is using. So in saying that Jesus became a man like us, he's pointing to the fact that he lived in this human flesh. Jesus was one of us. He was like us. He lived on this earth just as we do, which is why some might say that we don't see Jesus crowned in glory. We don't see Jesus with all of the things of this world subjected as under his footstool, as he references from Psalm chapter 8. He's saying that for a little while, he became lower than the angels so that he might taste death for everyone. Jesus was able to offer his life as payment for your sin because he became a man like us. Secondly, we see this, that Jesus became a man for us. Here's what I mean when I say that Jesus became a man for us. He became a man so that ultimately he might offer himself in your place and in my place, that he might offer his life. So the purpose of Jesus' life was so that he could offer himself up on the cross, his death as payment for you and for I, for, for our sins, right? Jesus became a man, not just a man like us, in that he had flesh, that he lived, he was... He breathed this air. He had hunger and thirst and he slept and, and all of those things that go with our humanity, but a man for us because the purpose of his incarnation, the purpose that he, for which he came to this world was so that he might redeem us, says in Romans chapter three, verse 26, so that he might be both just and the justifier of those who call on him by faith. In other words, so that he might be perfect and sinless and ultimately offer himself as the payment for those who are not perfect and sinless. It says in this passage, it references the fact that he is the one for whom and by whom all things exist, which means that he is God. 
but in bringing many sons to glory, it says in verse 10, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. How is it that we can be united together with Jesus so that the one who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, can be of the same source? That we can be one, that we can be united because Jesus gave himself for us on the cross. So he was a man like us. He was a man for us. But not only that, we see that he was a man, he became a man over us. A man over us. And here's what I mean by that. In the priestly sense of, of how I would use the word there, right? When you understand the priestly system, the priest is one who offers sacrifices on behalf of the people. In, in the Jewish system, the priest, the high priest, was the one who would go in each year on the high holy day and he would offer up the, the sacrifice and he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb over the mercy seat over the mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and he would offer up payment for the sins of the people. The priest was the one who made reparation with God, who made sacrifices before God in order to appease the wrath of God. And Jesus offered himself, we learn in Hebrews, particularly in Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, that he offered himself, his blood spilled for us so that he might make payment once and for all for our sins. He was a man over us, meaning that he came to function in that role of a priest on our behalf. It says even in Hebrews chapter two here that, that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's payment, for the sins of the people. How is it that Jesus could offer himself as payment for us? How is it that Jesus could willingly lay down his life as the sacrifice? How is it that Jesus could choose for a period of time to be subjected even to the authority of angels, to lower himself, to put himself on our level so that he might taste death for us? Because Jesus knew that unless he made himself the priest offered on our behalf, if, and unless he made himself the one to make payment of sins, that we could never hope to pay for our sins. But here's what's amazing about Jesus in the gospel, is that not only did Jesus make payment for our sins, Jesus was the payment for our sins. And so he offered himself up on the cross, making payment for us. He became a man over us in the priestly sense, in the sense that he that he made payment for our sins. He made atonement with God. In other words, think of the word atonement. We can be at one with God because Jesus offered himself as payment for us. And then finally, this we see in this passage. Jesus became a man with us. He became a man like us. He became a man for us. He became a man over us. But ultimately we see that he became a man with us. Which means that he identifies with our struggles. He identifies with our temptations even. We read in this passage that he himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 14. Just because, just because we were flesh and blood. Because we were flesh and blood. Jesus became flesh and blood, verse 14 says. He, 
he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil. So Jesus became a man with us. He became flesh and blood so that he might make payment for our sin. We read in verse 18 that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why? Because he himself suffered when tempted. Jesus went through these sufferings. He went through these things in his own flesh so that he could help us when we are tempted. He became a man with us. If you can glance over in your Bible at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, which we'll get to Hebrews 4 in a couple of weeks, but Hebrews 4, verse 15, we read that we do not have a high priest. I told you that was one of the key themes of Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus became a man with us so that when you and I suffer temptation, when you and I go through those trials in this life, we can know that Jesus identifies with our suffering. He knows our pain. He knows our weakness. He knows even temptation itself because he has been through those things. He willingly subjected himself to those things so that he might make payment for us on the cross. So here's what Hebrews chapter two teaches us. That Jesus is greater than us. That Jesus is greater than us. He's greater than our flesh. He's greater than the temptations that we face. He's greater than anything else in this world and yet he willingly chose to place himself under those things for a season so that he might make payment for us with his death, with his blood poured out on the cross. Has there ever been a moment in your life, has there ever been a time when by faith you have trusted in Jesus? When you have received this payment for your sins, when you have surrendered your life to him knowing that he gave everything for you, would you be willing to give your life to him? The message of Hebrews 2 cries out to us that Jesus was greater than everything and yet he willingly became less than all of that. He willingly subjected himself to all of that. That he had created the works of his own hands so that he might make payment for us on the cross. A man like us, a man for us, a man over us, a man with us. That he might pay for us, pay the price for us and ultimately now empower us to live the life that he's called us to. Because Jesus conquered death in the flesh, because he tasted death, as it says in verse nine, because he conquered that death that he had tasted in his flesh, now he is able, not only, not only is he able to, to forgive us, but to give us that same resurrection power that was his to fill us. I wanna read a passage from Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse 15. And as I do, listen to the language of what Paul has written in Ephesians one. And I want you to listen for things in Ephesians one that, that, we, can, that we can point to in Hebrews chapters one and two, the, the language, the verbiage that tell us about the power that now is available to us. Ephesians one, verse 15, Paul writes, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, 
I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That, that idea of inheritance, that's from Hebrews chapter 1. We see that in Hebrews 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and given him, and it rather gave him as head over all to come. Over all things to the church, rather, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The point of what Paul is writing about here, he's saying, I'm praying for you, church, that you might understand what God has done for you and you might live in that power now that Jesus provides. He says literally in verses 19 and 20 that, that, that a measurable greatness of his power is now made available to us. The same power that raised up Jesus from the dead is available to us through the work of Jesus on the cross when we come to him by faith. The point is this. Not only did Jesus suffer and die on the cross to make payment for your sin, but he suffered and died on the cross to make payment for your sin so that you might live in the victory that he's already won. So he became a man like us, a man for us, a man over us, a man with us, so that he might enable us by his power to live the life that he has called us to, to do what it is that he has prepared for us. That's the point. That's the beauty of what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead can give you strength day by day in your life. The same power that conquered the grave is alive in us through faith when we trust in Jesus. May we surrender ourselves to him. May we trust in him. Just a moment this morning, we're gonna have a time of invitation, a time of response. And in this time of response, if there's never been a moment in your life when by faith you've trusted in Jesus, friend, then today I pray that you would come and you would surrender your life to him. While the song is playing, I'm gonna be standing here at the front. Brad's gonna be standing here at the front as well. And we would love to walk you through a simple prayer of faith, surrendering your heart and your life to Jesus so that you might know that resurrection power, that you might know that same power that raised him from the dead, that same power that gave him for us the love of God through the work of Jesus. If today God is speaking to your heart and you know that you need to surrender your life to him, then today would you come and, and, and just take us by the hand. We would love to walk you through that that prayer of faith. Maybe today you're here and, and you know that God has saved you from your sin, but the truth of the matter is that you keep going back. You keep, you keep looking back to those things, returning to those things. You keep, rather than living in the victory that Jesus has won, you keep living in the defeat caused by your own sin. And what you need to see today is not the, the, the problems of your sin. You need to see the greatness of your Savior today. You need to not just understand the, the, the futile nature of, of your sin and, and the desires of your flesh, but you need to understand that Jesus is greater than those things and that he paid the price for those things so that you could have freedom from them. 
today, if you, if you just have some things that you need to surrender to him, some things that you need to confess and that you need to make right before him, our altars will be open during this time of response. And I would encourage you that you would come. And, and you don't have to come and kneel here at the altar in order to get things right before, before Jesus. He's just as present there with you where you're sitting as, as he is here. But there's something about the physical act of movement that says, God, I'm not going to stay where I am. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to your altar. I'm laying my life down. I'm surrendering myself to you. There's something about that physical act of movement that cements in our hearts what it is that God is speaking to us and what he's doing. And so if that's you today, I would encourage you that you would come and kneel here at the altar and in prayer, give those things to the Lord. However it is that God is moving, however he's stirring, would you respond by faith to him today. Let's pray together. Lord God.